Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to 1 Samuel chapter 11. 1 Samuel chapter 11 as we continue our walk through 1 Samuel. As you're finding your place there in God's Word, I want to welcome those who are joining us via our live stream, uh, Reach Church DeSoto, and uh, the venue service right down the hall. We're grateful uh, for each and every one of you. Um, as you're finding your place, I, I want to uh, let you know about a giving opportunity in the month of December. Uh, me and my family, Faith and I, uh, since the early days of our marriage, have always thought about, prayed about uh, what gift we would give to Christ. At Christmas, we give gifts to everybody uh, in our family. Hopefully, you get some kind of gift. I'm hoping to get one, maybe. Uh, but uh, we give gifts to each other. But the, uh, the meaning of Christmas is not about us. Uh, it's about Christ. It's about honoring him. And so uh, what are you going to give Christ this Christmas? It doesn't have to be a financial gift. You can give a gift of service. Uh, maybe in your life right now, the easiest thing, the most sacrificial gift you could give is serving people. Maybe you got somebody in your neighborhood. Maybe you got somebody, uh, a friend of yours, a coworker, somebody that you can be the hands and feet of Christ to meet a physical need in their life and just serve them with your time and give sacrificially in that way. What a gift to give to Christ. I think we're, we never make Christ more proud than when we're serving people. Uh, we never look more like Christ when, when we're serving people. Um, but some of you, maybe God's leading your heart to give in a financial way. And uh, if you're considering an opportunity, some of you have other things, uh, uh, causes in your life, that's great. But if you don't have one, I'd love for you to pray about and consider giving to what we're calling this Christmas uh, Bread of Life and Living Water. It's an opportunity. Last year we did feed, uh, feeding people and pastors. Uh, this year, we wanted to add the water element to this because we have a partnership in South Sudan with Empower One. They've built a church. It's going to become a community center. It's going to become a school, a health clinic, um, but they need fresh water, and so we have talked with them. We would love to be able to provide them with a well. Uh, we're looking to go back to South Sudan this next year on a mission trip, um, but it will go to, to feed people and pastors. We are still getting uh, photos and, and notes from our missionary partners of how, how you gave last year. Uh, uh, to the feeding project, how people are still being fed by the resources, the money that you gave. Same thing this year. Go to all of our missions partners. There's so many, uh, whether that be in India, you'll see them there, Middle East, uh, South Sudan, DR, Haiti, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Mexico, and Montreal. So um, just know that every dollar you give to this will go to uh, either uh, the Water Well Project in South Sudan or to provide resources so that uh, pastors uh, can feed their people and be the hands and feet of Christ. And in all of this, the, the goal here is to meet a physical need so that we can have an opportunity to tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ and meet the greatest spiritual need of every person's life, which is salvation through faith in Christ. So um, I pray that you'll consider that. Um, last year, we were amazed at what God did. Uh, we want to see it happen again. So you pray about that. If that's something that you would like to do, uh, you, can, you can give online and, and just make sure you, you look for a bread of life and living water. You can give and just make sure it's marked. Well, 1 Samuel 11, uh, we've seen that, that God has given uh, Israel a king. Uh, they've asked for one. Uh, they said, we want a king like the nations. We want a king that we can see with our eyes. And, uh, and God grants their request. And uh, God told Samuel, you're going to meet an individual from the tribe of Benjamin. He's the man. He's the one. He'll be the king. And we've seen a kind of a process in making Saul king. There's a private anointing. You remember uh, him and Samuel meet up, a divine appointment. There they offer sacrifice and fellowship together, break bread. Next morning, out on a common road outside of Ramah somewhere, Samuel anoints Saul king over Israel. Just a private moment, Samuel, Saul, and God, the only ones that know. 
And so there's that private anointing. And then there's some personal affirmation in Saul's life. God gave him three miracles, three signs to indicate that, that Saul, I am calling you to this office. I, I, I'm, I'm ordaining you. I'm anointing you as king over Israel. And so in a very personal way, he's got this affirmation, the greatest of those signs being that he prophesies out of character for Saul. A guy didn't go to church, didn't go to VBS, all of a sudden starts prophesying. And so God has affirmed to him this role that he's placed him in. And then uh, we saw last week kind of a, a public moment, a public inauguration, if you will, uh, where publicly he is made uh, king. They have to drag him out of the baggage room uh, to get him uh, and anoint him as king over the nation, but now they have this public aspect. And, and then we're going to see even this morning after this first battle, uh, again, they'll affirm that he is king, but they're going to confirm him in a new way. They're going to say he's king before the Lord. And in many ways, they're reaffirming their commitment to God as king. We see this process. And uh, Saul, what we see in our passage this morning, this is the first battle of the first king of Israel. Very important moment. First battle, first king of Israel. And here at the beginning, as far as I can tell reading ahead, this is about as good as it gets for Saul. This is the best story you're going to get of Saul. Right here at the beginning, he's going to start with a lot of humility. He's going to walk out in faith, and by the power of the Spirit, he'll achieve great victory. But we're going to see moving forward, very quickly, this guy will fall. Is it possible for a man to start out in humility, in love of God, uh, seeking the purpose of God by the power of God, but then to be placed in a position of power and get arrogant and self-reliant and then begin to fail? Well, that's what you're going to see in Saul's life. But right here at the beginning, he's going to give us a little glimpse. We're just going to get a little glimpse here in this first battle, the first king. We're going to get a glimpse of Jesus, the ultimate king. All the kings that Israel has. Remember, all of Scripture is pointing us to who? Jesus. From Genesis 3.15 on, it's all a story about Jesus. Redemption, salvation. It's all pointing. In fact, in this chapter, the word uh, deliver or salvation is used three times. It's, about, it's a story about salvation. And all of this is pointing. We're going to see a little bit of Christ in Saul. Uh, we're going uh, to see a pretty good picture of Christ in David, although he's going to fail and fall. And then you're going to see a little bit of Jesus in Solomon. He's going to fall real fast. And then you're going to have some kings occasionally pop up and give us glimpses. But we have to wait for the ultimate king, God's king, King Jesus, who he has appointed. So we're going to see Jesus. And uh, we're going to see some keys to the spiritual battle that God has called us to. So with that in mind, let's pray together, then we'll work our way through this text. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come before your word as your people. We don't take this for granted, Lord. God, I look around. We, we're so blessed. Just coming off of Thanksgiving, we, we, we gathered this morning. We were able to drive our cars this place in no fear of persecution. And uh, we know that's not the case for our brothers and sisters in Christ in so many places around this world, and we lift them up to you. But God, we don't want to take this gift for granted, and so we just say thank you for the opportunity to gather. And even more than this, we thank you for the opportunity to gather around your word, the truth of your word. And we come today to be changed. The goal this morning, Lord, it is not more information. We don't need more information. We need transformation. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do business in all of our hearts today. Spirit, have your way in us today. 
illumine our minds and help me not to get in the way or to muddy the waters with details that aren't important. Help us to keep the main things the main things that we might hear your voice and we might apply it to our lives, that we might be changed for the glory of Christ and the growth of his kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, look with me, verse one. It says, now Nahash the Ammonite came up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. I think you come to this, there's a lot of background information that we need to fully understand what's going on here. And, and just as I prayed, Lord, help us keep the main things. I might be giving you a lot more information than you really want to hear, but this stuff's really fun to me. You look at the, this, this first group that's coming against the Israelites here. We've seen the Philistines, not seen much mention, in, especially here in 1 Samuel. We saw them in Judges, but you see a mention of the Ammonites. Who are the Ammonites? Well, the Ammonites are the descendants of Lot. Lot is the nephew of Abraham. You'll remember the Sodom and Gomorrah story. Uh, Lot loses everything, um, including his wife, his boys. He's left with just his two daughters, and he's there in, his, in, a, in a cave not a very glamorous story in scripture, but these two daughters realize they don't have a man to continue on their family. And so they get their father drunk and through an incestuous relationship, they produce two boys, one named Moab and the other Amnon. And these two boys will become two nations that will become a thorn in the flesh of Israel. But they tie themselves back to Abraham and God gives them land. So they have land and in Judges chapter 11, the Ammonites think that Israel has taken land that is rightfully theirs. And they get very frustrated. The people of Israel, the nation was not a conquering nation. They were to defend what God gave to them to the extent that they're even doing that today. But they're to defend the land that God gave them, but not to encroach on somebody else's territory. But the, the people of the Ammonites believe that they've taken some of, of the land that's theirs. And so they come against Israel. And God raises up a man named Jephthah in the book of Judges, Judges 11, and they push back the Ammonites and they retake the land that God has rightfully given to them. But you see in that story a picture of the animosity, the jealousy that exists between the Ammonites and the people of Israel. There's a lot of frustration, there's a lot of hatred, there's a lot of jealousy. And so they're frustrated and they see the nation of Israel in a very dangerous spot. The nation of Israel here, as, as King Saul takes leadership in the nation, they have a lot of problems. They're in a very dire situation. And so Saul is going to be raised up at a very critical time in the life of the nation. So you have the Ammonites on the east, and you have on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And then to the west, you have the Philistines, and you have Israel right in the middle. And so they've got opponents on both sides. And not only this, but it's a nation that's divided. They're, they're divided morally and spiritually and geographically to some extent. They're scattered about. You have a northern kingdom, a southern kingdom. There's not a lot of unity here. And I think the Ammonites see Israel in a very weak spot. They don't have a king. They don't have any organized leadership. And so they see uh, this, this uh, nation as being weak and vulnerable. And, and logically, where are they going to attack first? They're going to attack on the fringes. Uh, they're going to go to Jabesh Gilead, out on the fringes where they're separated from the nation of God. Now, then the question is, who are the, who are the people of Jabesh Gilead? Well, we've already talked about them to some extent. You remember when we talked about Saul, Saul is a Benjamite. And the Benjamites had a city within Benjamin called uh, Gibeah. That's where Saul's from. It's Saul's hometown. And you'll remember, I'm giving you a lot of information. Just hang with me. I know it's lunch. You're probably tired. Hang in there with me, all right? It gets better, I promise. Uh, so Gibeah is a city, a very heinous, immoral act occurred in Gibeah. There was a Levite who was passing through. 
Uh, they, they raped and beat his concubine, left her for dead. The Levi is frustrated. He uh, sends a very powerful message to the people of Israel that immoral, immorality and evil has never occurred like this, and we got to do something about it. And you remember, all the nation of Israel comes together against Benjamin, and they fight them until there's only 600 men left. They're going to eliminate them from the face of the earth. And then they relent, and they say, we can't destroy an entire tribe of people. So they relent on those 600, but then they're left with a predicament because how, we, how do we continue the lineage because they have no wives? And the nation of Israel says, we've committed ourselves to God. We're not giving wives to these men who have been a part of this immorality. And so the nation looks around and says, is there any city, is there any city out there that didn't send men to come and fight this battle? And there's one city that didn't send any men. Guess what city it was? It was Jabesh Gilead. And so Jabesh Gilead, they go to them, they come against them, they fight against them, and they take some of their women, they take them to be wives to these Benjamites in Gibeah. And this becomes important because the first place when they go, when the the people of Jabesh Gilead send out messengers, the first place they're gonna go is to Gibeah. Why would that be the first place they go? Because they're relatives. They're related. Listen to me, the rest of the nation probably wasn't very fond of Jabesh Gilead. Um, This is the group, they're a part of those three tribes, Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh that settled on the eastern side of the Jordan. They're separated. Not only are they separated, but when push came to shove, they didn't send any men to help us. We don't like them very much. There's probably only one city that would have any affinity or sympathy for the people of Jabesh Gilead, and that's Gibeah. And so you see how important that is. So they find themselves in a very difficult place. The Ammonites have come against Jabesh Gilead, and and the people of Jabesh Gilead, they know they're done. They're done. They've got nothing. In fact, they say here, we're just going to give up. We'll become your slaves. Uh, We'll become a part of your kingdom. You'll become our king. And so they say, make a treaty with us. We'll just serve you. Well, look at the response of Nahash. Verse 2, but Nahash the Ammonite said to them, I'll make it with you on this condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you. Thus, I'll make it a reproach on all of Israel. Um, He's taunting them. This is much like uh, Goliath with David. He's taunting this nation. You got nothing. I'll make a treaty with you, but you got to gouge out your right eyes. Now, why would he ask them to do that? Well, it's very significant. When they fought in a military battle, their formation was such that they would have their shield on their left side so that their right eye was exposed. And it was the, 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 the hand by which they threw their sling or their, their spear or whatever else they were doing. And if you take out their right eye, they're, they're virtually rendered impotent as a, as a military. They can never come against us. They can never do anything to us. And it was a reproach. It would have been a reproach on the nation. You guys don't even care about your own. There's nobody who will come and save you. You don't have a savior. You don't have anybody. You're supposed to be the people of God. We publicly humiliated you, and now you're a reproach to the entire nation. And so they're in a really bad spot. Look at verse 3. The elders of Jabesh said to him, let us alone for seven days that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then if there's no one to deliver us, we'll come out to you. So they say, give us seven days. We want seven days. We'll send the word out. We'll see if there's anybody who will come and help us. And if there's no deliverance, if we have no salvation, if we have no savior, then then we'll present ourselves before you and you can do as you wish. In verse four, the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and spoke these words in the hearing of the people and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Again, they go to Gibeah. They they know that Gibeah will have some level of sympathy because they're related. Uh, It was these men of Gibeah, that there are their distant grandfathers. And so uh, they have sympathy and, and they hear the story of the situation and what's going on and their hearts are broken. They begin to weep and lift up their voices and cry. 
And then we see what happens in verse five. They're in a bad situation. They've got no savior, no one to help them. Verse five, now behold Saul. It's a critical piece of this passage of this narrative. Here God has set apart his man. Why did he bring them? Because God heard their cry and their desire for deliverance. In fact, if you look in chapter 12, verse 12, the whole reason they wanted a king is because they were afraid of the Ammonites. And God has given them a king. God has given them a deliverer. And here he is. And behold, Saul. Saul was coming from the field. It's interesting. Saul starts out. He has such a great beginning. He comes from the field with his oxen. There's a powerful picture here that Saul at the very beginning was just a humble man who was seeking to be faithful in the circumstances in which God had placed him. Much like David. You remember David was anointed king over Israel. And what did he do? He went back to shepherding sheep. He just went back. He didn't try to figure out a game plan, a battle plan. How do we uh, need to start a campaign in Israel? No, he just went back to doing what God had called him to do, which was shepherding at that moment. And here is Saul. He's been anointed king. And he just goes back to tending the oxen. If there's one thing we're going to see throughout First and Second Samuel, there's this common theme that, that Saul here, it's going to change very quickly, but certainly we'll see it dominate David's life. His motto will kind of be, I will be who God wants me to be when God wants me to be it. This is so many people, they're worried about what is God's will? God, what is God's will? I don't know what God wants me to do in the future. You know, so many times we have questions about the future, where God wants us to go and what God wants us to do. And rather than dwelling on what we don't know, we need to just be faithful to what we do know. I call it blooming where you're planted. Rather than always worrying about where you're going to go next, how about just being faithful where God has placed you today? And so that's Saul's mentality. What a great start. The guy's just going back to what God called him to do. The news, and, and by the way, they don't go to Saul. Which is interesting because they've anointed him king and certainly word had gotten out of the nation, but they don't think much of him. Up to this point, he's not looked like much of a king. Been a few valiant men who went with him, but for the most part, a lot of people opposed him. How in the world can this guy save us? And they're weeping, lifting up their voices, and here comes Saul. <laughs> running his oxen. Here he comes. And immediately, what does he do? Says, uh, verse 5, now, Behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and he said, what's the matter with the people that they weep? So they related to him the words of the men of Jabesh. So critical, if you're going to lead a nation, you've got to have a passion, you've got to have a compassion, more than that, for the people that you're called to serve. And again, we see some beautiful characteristics here in Saul. Is that number one, he just he has a heart for his people. They're hurting. And when one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. And so here, he sees the people in a place of sadness and weeping. He hears the situation, and his heart is moved with compassion. But the next part is, is the most important part. Then in verse 6, it says, Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became very angry. The Spirit rushes upon him. And we, we can't read this like we do in the New Testament. When In the New Testament, we, when a person comes to faith in Christ, the Spirit comes at that moment. They have all of the Spirit at the moment of salvation. But in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was... Uh, limited in, in that the Spirit only comes upon certain peoples and certain individuals at certain times to accomplish the purposes that God had for them. So the Spirit of God just comes upon uh, uh, Saul here, much in the same way that the Spirit of God came upon Samson and he rips apart a lion and the, the Spirit of God would come upon Jephthah. The Spirit of God just rushes on Saul at this moment. And we're gonna see a dramatic change in Saul's life and it will be a, uh, really a, an act of the Spirit come upon him. 
We see in Saul's life, we've already seen it to some extent, when he began to prophesy and the Spirit came upon him then, that Saul is being taught this important lesson that the only way you're gonna accomplish any victory for me is, is if you are empowered by my Spirit. Um, we're gonna see the nation in verse four go from weeping, and if you read the last verse in verse 15, they go to great rejoicing. How in the world do they go from weeping to rejoicing? How in the world does Saul go from a coward to this great warrior and leader? I'll tell you how, by the Spirit of God. And see, listen, if we're gonna accomplish anything great for God, it will only be a result of, of God's empowering Spirit enabling us to do what we can't do on our own. You remember Zechariah 4, 6, and God said to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. What Saul is learning here, what the nation is learning here is that it will only be by my empowering spirit that you'll be able to do anything. In fact, all the, the victories that Israel had, some of them are so odd. How do they do it by the spirit of God? Jericho. God doesn't say get an army, amass them over here and do this and do that. No, he tells them to walk around the city seven times. Why? So that he could tell the nation, listen, it's not about your military strength, but it's by my spirit that I give you victory. What a powerful message that God is speaking to Saul in this moment. The spirit comes upon him. Listen, I, I keep this, this little saying in the front of my Bible as a reminder to me all the time. The flesh knows nothing but failure. And the spirit knows nothing but success. The flesh knows nothing but failure. The Spirit knows nothing but success. Now, for those of us, New Testament, post-Calvary, post-Pentecost, uh, we don't need more of the Spirit. We get all the Spirit we need at the moment of salvation. But we do need more of the Spirit's control over our life. We'll talk about that a little later. But here the Spirit comes upon uh, Saul, and he's emboldened in a way that we've never seen before. Much in the same way you'll remember the, well, specifically Peter, who denied Christ in the presence, the fierce presence of a little servant girl. He was a coward. And then you get over into Acts, and this guy stood before kings and said, you can do what you want to to me, but I'm not gonna stop speaking about what I've seen and heard to the extent that later on in his life he would be crucified upside down. What happened? What happened was the Holy Spirit of God emboldened him and gave him courage to do what God had called him to do. But what's interesting to me is the Spirit rushes upon King Saul in this moment. And what's the first emotion, the first emotion that Saul experiences post the Spirit of God? What's his emotion? You can speak, it's feedback time. What's, what's the, see if you're reading. Anger. The Spirit comes upon Saul and he gets mad. He gets angry. And I think if we're not careful, we somehow become pacifists, thinking that it's so unbiblical. The Bible doesn't teach pacifism, and the Bible doesn't tell us to ever get angry. In fact, Paul told Timothy, be angry. We like the last part. The first part's important too. Listen, if there are some times in your life that you have a righteous indignation towards those things that are evil and sinful, then something's wrong with you. We get angry. Now, we don't sin. We don't act out on that anger in such a way that it would cause us to do sinful things. 
But there ought to be times in our life when we have a level of righteous indignation towards the sin and the evil that we see perpetrated in our day. And Satan and the work that he's doing. And it wells up within us a deep anger to move and to do something. And here Saul, the Spirit of God comes upon him. So many times we think the Spirit of God, oh, peaceful, joyful. You, see in the old, you read the Old Testament, it caused me to go back and see the Spirit of God rushing upon Samson all these times. Almost every occasion where the Spirit of God rushes upon somebody in the Old Testament is on. It ain't a peaceful time. We're about to throw down. The Spirit of God emboldens him and gives him courage. In fact, an incredibly courageous act. Look at what he does. Verse 7, he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out. The dread of the Lord fell, and that's an understatement. Can you imagine this scene, though? I love to put myself in the shoes of the people that are in the story. Just imagine if you're standing around in Gibeah. Saul hears the Spirit of God rushes on this man, and he just starts chopping up his oxen. You're saying, that man done lost his mind. But it was an incredible act of courage. He begins to chop up. He's so mad. He chops up his oxen, sends the pieces of that oxen, and says, you let everybody know. They don't join in this battle. That's what's going to happen to their oxen. And I love this about Saul. Listen, great leaders don't tell people this is what you do. Great leaders say, follow me. And Saul says here, I'm going to put some skin in the game. I'm going to kill my oxen first. I'm putting my oxen down. You put your life down. Because you know what he's picturing the nation? It don't matter if we have oxen or don't have oxen. If we don't have the favor of God on this nation, then we're all done. And so the message is sent out. It unites the nation. Saul in this moment is such a beautiful picture of unity. He's not going to do good moving forward after this. But right here, good leaders always have a way of dividing their enemies and uniting their friends. And you have a fractured nation. And now all of a sudden they're going to have unity around this common cause and mission. Verse 8, he numbered them in Bezek and the sons of Israel were 300,000. And the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you'll have deliverance, you'll have salvation. For the messengers went and told the men of Jabesh, and they were glad, another understatement. Oh, they were glad. Uh, They send these messengers. I love what Saul tells them to say. Because there's a great level of confidence here. Not a confidence in his own self, but his confidence in the Lord and the power of the Spirit. But he doesn't say, hey, you tell Jabesh, we'll, hey, we'll do what we can. Um, maybe we'll get a few guys to come out and I don't know, we'll put up a fight. I don't know. No, what does he tell them? You tell them by the time sun gets hot, we're going to slap them naked and send them without their clothes. We are going to whip them. Boy, that is confidence. Listen to me, when you are doing the Lord's work according to his will by the power of his spirit, you can have a whole lot of confidence. We are not a people. Now, there's no confidence in Saul here. He's going to have confidence in himself later. But right here, it's not a man who's confident in himself, but he's confident of the Lord of hosts and the love of his name and the love of his nation. And so he says, you tell him we're coming. Then verse 10, then the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we'll come out to you. They're speaking to Nahash. You may do to us whatever seems good to you. And don't you know in the back of their minds, they were just telling them, we'll come out tomorrow, you do what seems good, and 
they know we got a group of people coming. Verse 11, Saul wasted no time. The next morning, Saul put the people in three companies. They came in the midst of the camp at the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. It's amazing here. You see King Saul exhibiting skills in areas in, where, in which he has no experience. Isn't this what the Spirit of God does? Enabling us to do things that we have no skill or experience to do, but he enables us to do them. As soon as I read that, I thought of the disciples. Listen, if you were gonna start a worldwide mission organization, I can almost guarantee you, you would have selected none of the disciples. I mean, they're from the backwoods of Kentucky. These are not Harvard Yale grads. They have no business degrees. They're simple fishermen. They were probably very vulgar and dirty. These are not guys you would have chosen for a worldwide mission organization. But God is going to call them and Jesus will disciple them and the spirit will come into their life and they will do more than they ever thought imaginable or possible because of God's work and his spirit in their life. This is what the spirit does. In fact, the only educated one in the whole group of disciples, the apostles, was who? Judas. How'd that work? Now, what is the point? We don't, don't have to do education? No. <laughs> but what it means is it doesn't matter whether you have education or no education. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you have nothing. But if you got the Spirit of God, you got all you need to do what God has called you to do. So here the Spirit of God enables Saul in a dramatic way. Verse 12, then the people said to Samuel, who is he that said, shall, shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. Now, all of a sudden, they've seen this, this great work of God. Now, they're all on board. Hey, get anybody that opposes this guy, let's kill him. And what's amazing is Saul's response. Look at what Saul says. But Saul said, not a, not a man shall be put to death this day. For the, today, the Lord has accomplished salvation, deliverance in Israel. I love this right here about Saul. In this moment, he essentially says, guys, you need to understand, so this is not about me. This is about the Lord and what he's done. Don't make this about me today. Let's just worship the Lord. Yeah, there's something about individuals who stand up in front of people and tell you how great they are that just bothers me. Uh, political ads. <laughs> I'm pay somebody to tell you how great I am. So often it's like fingernails on a chalkboard to me. Why is that so repulsive to us? Especially us as believers. <laughs> because we know, they think they're great, but they're just sinners. They're just like you and me. And if there's any greatness that comes from their life, it's only a product of God and his grace in their life. And I love Saul at this moment. It's not about me. It's about God who is our ultimate king. Verse 14, then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. I love Samuel. He's there and we see a beautiful partnership right here. It's not gonna be a great partnership moving forward, but as Saul is submissive to the word of God, he's in partnership with Samuel, the judge and the prophet of this nation. So the word of God, the, the, the politician and the pastor are working hand in hand. And Samuel says, Let, let's go. I think Gilgal was Samuel's favorite spot. 
because it was the place of those memorial stones when God brought the people over the Jordan River, the water parted and the Levites passed through on dry ground, they get to the other side, they set up the stones and they circumcise and they recommit themselves to God and here they're gonna renew the kingdom. Renew the kingdom, what does that mean? I'll tell you what I think it means. I think right here the nation realizes that listen, we want to renew our commitment not to Saul as our king but to God as our king. That this is his kingdom. We have an earthly king, but ultimately God is our king. How do I know that? Look at the last verse, verse 15. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord. They've made him king before, but not in this way. Now he's a king before the Lord. That there's a recognition on the part of the people that the king is subservient to God. He's not autonomous. He only moves in conjunction with God's will. And he will exercise great authority, but only in as much as he abides under the authority of the Lord. The same is true today. We give people in this world authority. Even in the church, there's authority given to leadership. But at any point, if those leaders get out from underneath a submission to God's word, they lose the right to lead. Much in the same way that the president is the commander in chief of the army. And no general can say, I don't care what the old man wants to do. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. We had a guy like that named MacArthur. And who was the uh, Truman? Yes. Thank you, Steve, the politician. (laughs) Truman. You remember what Truman said? That's one of my cool deals. He goes, uh, MacArthur, he tells MacArthur, you don't go any further. And MacArthur said, well, we'll see about that. And... uh, Truman says, I might just be a haberdasher from Missouri, but I'm still the president of the United States, and you, sir, are fired. And he set down the most popular general our nation has ever known. Why? Because he couldn't take direction. Do you know what you're going to see in Saul's life? Right here, he's submissive to the word of God. You're going to get two chapters over, and he will not. You know what God's going to say? You're fired because I can't have a man who won't submit to me. But right here, he's a king uh, before the Lord. And they, they're there at Gilgal, they make sacrifices, peace offerings, I, I love it. Just fellowship with God and with each other, a beautiful moment. What, what's the point though of this story? What, what are we intended to see here? We read these stories of the Old Testament battles and uh, what does this have to do with us? So I think first of all, God uses narratives such as this to teach us some things uh, about the battle that we face today and about how we achieve success today in the battles that we face. And so God takes these real and physical and these bloody and these gory battles and he teaches us something about the very real battle that we face today. And we need to understand something. We are in a battle. We don't struggle against flesh and blood, but our battle is no less real than the battle that they faced right there in 1 Samuel chapter 11. We have a very real enemy. There's a very real battle. It, it, just because you cannot see it with your eyes does not mean it's an illusion. It is real, and we do not fight this battle by means of bombs and bullets and swords, but we fight this battle by the Spirit of God at work in our lives through prayer and reading of his word. And it's a real battle. 
And the only way, listen to me, the only way, the way that we find success in the battle we face today is the same way in which they achieved success back then. And it is only by the Spirit of God. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Jesus said it this way, apart from me, you can do nothing. And it's so sad to me because I think that one of the greatest lies of Satan is getting us to somehow think that we're living lives in peacetime. That just because our lives, these little homes that we go to and we go to our jobs and we're not fighting any guys with, with machine guns and we can't see that, that we are lulled to sleep and think that there's no battle going on around us. Listen to me this morning. There is a real battle facing you every day. And every time you proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have just declared war against Satan and all his work. And you don't think he, make, he gets mad about that? And you don't think you will not face some very real and spiritual battles? Some of the things I truly believe this. There was, uh, uh, in fact, Joseph Kostrija who, Kostrija, who helps us in our sound booth, his, I believe it was his uncle, was a guy named Norm Geisler. And he was a theologian, and he taught at a seminary. And he was asked one time, well, he, he talked about spiritual warfare. And they said, what if this might lead us to believe that there's a, there's a demon behind every bush. And he says, there just might be. Listen to me. You wake up tomorrow. Do not be fooled. You are in a battle. And you have an enemy, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And what he loves to do is he loves to deceive you, to get you an heir, to doubt the inerrancy of this book, the infallibility of this book, to doubt the, to doubt the truthfulness of it and the relevance to your life. He'll lead you into deception. He'll distract you with the things of this world. I think one of the greatest tactics of Satan is just to make us busy so that our lives become more about the bottom line of our business and how we put more money in our bank account instead of the souls of men and women who are lost around us. We're in a battle. We're growing God's kingdom. We're not growing a physical nation, but we're growing the kingdom of God as we profess the gospel and people bend the knee to King Jesus. And we need the spirit. How do we gain the spirit? Through the study of word and prayer. If you're not praying, you are thinking that you can do it on your own. Listen today more than ever. We need humble men and women who are being faithful in the areas where God called them. Who love people. Who are burdened by the, by the plight of those individuals around them. Especially the lostness of individuals. Who see the sin of the world around them. And have a Holy Spirit inspired righteous indignation towards sin, Satan, and death. That drives them to be courageous in speaking the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. And in that way we see victory. We turn weeping into rejoicing like we see in 1 Samuel chapter 11. And ultimately what do we see in this? We see Jesus. Listen, the point of this passage is there's a people here that are lost and hopeless and they need a savior. And God sends them somebody. And he's humble, he's compassionate, he's empowered by the spirit, he's courageous, he's faithful, and he achieves the victory. You and I are a people who are lost and hopeless apart from Jesus Christ. And we needed a savior. And God sent somebody. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was motivated by his great love for you. He felt compassion to your sinful condition. 
and the wrath of God that was pointed in your direction, and he came. He wasn't empowered by the Spirit of God. He is God. He's the beloved Son in whom the Father is well pleased. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and there is salvation in no one else because he's God's appointed king. And the good news of Jesus Christ is, listen, Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and his resurrection reminds us that there was a statement that was made. I'd rather, um, I'd rather fail in a cause that will ultimately succeed than succeed in a cause that will ultimately fail. The good, Jesus, good news of Jesus Christ is he reminds us that even though we may lose some battles, ultimately we win the war because Christ won. Now, you know, I look at these things, and I sometimes, not always, so don't get used to this. Sometimes they're not going to be a hymn, all right? Don't send me emails, but we got one today. We actually had two. The first one that uh, I thought would onward Christian soldiers, which I think the apostles would have loved because they see the Christian life as a battle. Uh, but the one that I've been singing all week in the hallways is Victory in Jesus. I just can't stop singing. I thought, we got to sing it this morning. So I texted Bill last night. I said, bring your guitar. This is a guitar hymn. We can't sing this with just a piano. We need a guitar. And we worked out some of the kinks in the first service. <laughs> See, I, 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 this is a hymn to me. Because you can go out there. I did it this week. I listened to a lot of versions. This hymn is good when it's sung fast you got to have some beat to this sucker, all right? It gets fun that way. So I told Bill in the first service, brother, you think you can handle this? You watch for the changes and try to keep up, all right? <laughs> all right. You ready? I heard an old, old story How a Savior came from glory how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning, of his precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sin and won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior. broken spirit and somehow Jesus came and brought to me the victory oh victory in Jesus my Savior forever he sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood he loved me ere I knew him 
Now this last verse is the best verse. Growing up, we only sang the first and the last. But this, this one is good. Talks about our mansion. Any of y'all got a mansion? I don't care where you're living today. If you know Jesus, you got a mansion. You know, Paul said to Timothy, the time of my departure is near. You know that word departure, it was used of soldiers. At the end of a war. And they're told the war is over, you can go home. And they'd pull up the tent pegs and they go home. That's what death is for the believer. It's us. Now, until then, we're in a war. Whether you want to be or not, you're on one side or the other. There's no, no spiritual Switzerland. You're in one or the other. We're in a battle, but one day, listen to me, one day, one day we're going to lay down our weapons of war and we're going home. We got a mansion. Y'all want to sing about it? I heard about a mansion he has built for me in glory. And I heard about the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea. About the angels singing and the old redemption story. And some sweet day I'll sing up there the song of victory. Y'all get up. Father, we thank you so much for the victory you have accomplished for us. Lord, your love is amazing. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you should care for him? God, you saw us in our sinful condition and all of our trespasses and sins, dead spiritually, broke spiritually, objects of wrath, sons of disobedience and we can't understand it but you loved us how do we know you did something you sent Jesus King Jesus came the one that all the Old Testament looks towards the one that all the New Testament looks back at the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who came and died on a cross to achieve victory drew the enemy in and used his own instrument of death against him to accomplish the victory. And to affirm his victory, he conquered the grave. He's ascended his right hand of the Father and he intercedes on our behalf and he's calling out a people today. And God, I pray for anybody in this room that doesn't know you, God, call out to them today. By your word and your spirit, would you open their eyes to the depth of their sin, the beauty of their Savior Jesus, would they run to you today and know your victory? God, for those of us that do know your victory, I pray that we'd fight all the more courageously. 
not in physical means, not in worldly or secular means, but by means of your spirit, by prayer and by the study of your word, would you empower us to be your witnesses in this world, to grow your kingdom and to see more and more people bend the knee to King Jesus, that they too might know your victory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.